the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business, a podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Laura Slattery, standing in for Kieran this week and on today's podcast. Elon Musk's chaotic reign at Twitter is attracting the attention of regulators worldwide. They include Ireland's Data Protection Commission. We'll be discussing the latest on the DPC's concerns amid Musk's bizarre ownership of Twitter. Later, I'll also be talking to Joe Brennan of the Irish Times about motor insurers' bumper year last year and what it tells us about the state of insurance reform. But first, the Irish data protection watchdog met representatives of Twitter earlier this week to discuss the fallout from Elon Musk's mass layoffs and his other shopping list of plans for the company. With me now is Irish Times technology expert Kira O'Brien. Hi, Kira. Afternoon. It's fair to say that this has been quite a wild ride so far, but let's start with the DPC. What are they likely to have said at this meeting on Monday and what have they said since? Well, what the Irish Data Protection Watchdog was largely looking for was reassurance from Twitter on a couple of fronts. First of all, they would have somebody in the role of their data protection officer. And then second of all, that they would continue to make decisions on the processing of personal data for EU users from their Irish office. And, And this is important, you know, because they have to have the contact details of the data protection officer for obvious reasons. And also... For Twitter to make use of that main establishment, which allows it to do that one-stop shop of only dealing with one data protection office for the entire European Union, they have to make the decisions on the processing of personal data in the EU. So that would be in Dublin, because that's where its European headquarters is. So obviously, there's been quite a bit of turmoil. There's been executives leaving um, at a rate of, I've I've never seen before, Uh, it Basically, what sparked the concern from the the DPC here was that there was a number of departures um, in those key roles. So Twitter's head of trust and safety, Yael Roth, went. The chief information security officer, Leah Kissner, went. The chief compliance officer, Marianne Fogarty. And then uh, the chief privacy officer, which is the key one, Damien Kieran. They all went within hours of each other. Now, obviously, you know, we've seen a lot uh, of turmoil at Twitter since Elon Musk took over, um, you know, 50% of the staff had gone. You know, there's more today where people have been basically told that they have to commit, if they want to be part of Twitter 2.0, they have to commit to being extremely hardcore, working long hours and at high intensity, which sounds like not very much fun at all. And, you know, possibly you know, it's not something that they can do outside of the US because he's also told people, you know, if you are going to be part of this new Twitter 2.0, you click this link to say yes by 5 p.m. Eastern time, which is 10 p.m. in Ireland uh, on Thursday. And if you don't click yes, you'll be considered to have left the company. You'll get three month severance package and that will be it. Not really how it works for employment law around the world, but we'll see how that one plays out. I mean, it sounds a bit more like a kind of a kidnapping ransom than uh, how normally jobs are uh, negotiated or renegotiated uh, terms of employment. I mean, that is a whole area like separate to data protection and content moderation where Elon Musk really doesn't really have the best of track records, does he? No, he doesn't. I mean, like he's, he's, he's been in trouble in the US with Tesla before, um, you know, I, I think we're, we're kind of at a point now where a lot of the people who know this stuff have gone from the company. I mean, you can't 
cut. I mean, the, the, the way they did the job cuts, you can't cut like that and still retain the the expertise you had before. I mean, we, our own story said, you know, the, the, the people who we were talking to were saying it was carnage. It was random. It was indiscriminate. And the fact that they had to then go to people and say, please come back. Uh, we made a mistake. You know, they, they realised that they, they couldn't actually do the job that they had committed to doing with the staff they had shows that, like, th- there wasn't very much thought that went into this. And to be honest, for me, if I was working in Twitter, and obviously I'm not, but if I was working in Twitter, this is, seems like an easy way out of a company that is just going to be not the place that you signed up for, put it that way. There's also talk of him firing people who were critical of him in internal company communications and um, Twitter did have this policy of you know speak up don't be afraid to criticize and that has now obviously been rolled back there's also the, the fact that people were told they could work remotely forever and now he's basically said if you're not in the office if you can physically get to an office uh, you have to spend 40 hours a week there or consider yourself no longer working for the company you know it's just it's very unsettling for people who are working there it's it's very bizarre to see from the outside looking in it's 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 probably the most bizarre approach uh, I've seen to taking over a, a company, um, especially if you wanted to work well. I mean, look, the first thing he said was that Twitter was going to be a bastion of free speech. We see that's not the case because people who impersonated him in a funny way were banned from the platform or, sorry, temp- permanently suspended from the platform, um, which is kind of seems odd in itself. Uh, they decided that, the you know, he, he decided that they were going to do Twitter Blue as a verification tool, basically all it is, is, you know, if you pay $8, you get your blue check b- beside your name. They've now had to put that off until the end of the month because within hours of that going live, you had accounts in the name of, of Eli Lilly, for example, saying that their ins- that insulin was going to be free. And you saw the impact that that had on, on the stock price. It was just the most ill-thought-out move. I mean, for Twitter, which, you know, has tested and retested and then, you know, tweaked features for a long time before they actually put them out because there are these unintended consequences. This is a whole new way of doing things and it just seems utterly chaotic. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to say that I think what happened with Eli Lilly and, and some other companies as well, but most notably with them, as you say, because they uh, their share price lost value. It, it's one of the most surreal things I've ever seen uh, play out. Um, and it's all happening in lightning fast time. I should, I should make the obvious di- disclaimer that... Uh, whatever we say now is is correct. And as much as we know at the time of recording, because in a few hours time, Elon Musk could come out with another uh, adapt U-turn or, or crazy plan uh, for Twitter. And the suspension then that the pausing of the Twitter blue plan, you know, was sort of by necessity. And I know he said, as you mentioned, it will be relaunched at the end of the month. I don't think Ireland is in that group or that's not clear yet. Twitter Blue is not something that was available to us anyway, so we wouldn't have been in the first tranche of, of rollouts. But what I find out, just as somebody who used Twitter for a long time, um, I find myself spending less time on there at the moment. Um, and it's very difficult. You actually have to go into the individual profiles to see if somebody is a verified account or somebody who's just paid $8 to say they are whoever they feel like saying they are. And there was a lot of people. I mean, when I went into my my own, I uh, did a search for Elon Musk and there was lots of Elon Musk accounts popping up and they all had their blue tick. Obviously, there's only one actual Elon Musk, thank God. But this just shows you how something that you can't just kind of fire these ideas out there. I mean, but this is what's been happening. So to to try and counter this, 
um, Twitter had put out a, a notice that what they were going to do is they're going to attach this official tag to certain accounts, to, to accounts that were verified under the old system. So, you know, to stop this, precisely this kind of thing from happening. Um, and it was literally, I think it only been tweeted out that this was happening. And he tweeted underneath to say, oh, um, I've killed it. And then it came back and then it was gone again. And now it's back for some accounts. And it's just, it's very unsettling. And if, you know, I, th- I think if you're going for a fully subscription model, um, I, I'm not sure that an $8 a month kind of deal on Twitter is going to get the revenue that Twitter needs. You know, advertising will have to play a part in that. But no advertiser, well, very few advertisers, as we've seen, are going to want to put their money into a platform where anybody can say they're them and promote a tweet claiming that, you know, one of their products is going to be given away for free. Um, obviously, you know, the, the actual ethics of, of and, and the, the price tag attached to, to drugs in the States aside, you know, for any company that's thinking of advertising with Twitter, I mean, a, a lot of companies have already paused their advertising, you know, like Audi and, and GM, they've all decided that they were going to take a step back just to see how things would go. And I think then he threatened to, I think the word he used was thermonuclear name and shame them. But we all know that the ones that have, have said they're not going to advertise on Twitter for now because they were quite publicly saying it themselves. There was no need to name and shame. We know who they are. Yeah, they were happy to declare their stance on the whole affair. I mean, I think a lot of advertisers as well were never really too keen on Twitter. So this is only really exacerbating their doubts about the platform. Um, None of this um, screams reassurance, you know, which is obviously what they were trying to give. Um, Or at least some of the executives in Twitter here were trying to give the DPC earlier this week. But just on the the Twitter blue point, I mean, you know, at the moment people give the company their data, but if they're not on Twitter blue, they're not giving Elon Musk their credit card information. But my question is, is it really safe to give Elon Musk your credit card information at the moment? Well, I'm sure legally, you know, we would have to say that, of course, Twitter would treat your credit card data in the manner in which it's supposed to and legally required to. I think, look, the, 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 the DPC was quite on the ball on this one. You know, they asked for a meeting on Friday. They got it on Monday afternoon. So I think everybody is quite keen to clear this up. Now, what they have said, because I've, I've, obviously we've been, we've been talking to a few people this week about the whole situation there. Now, what the DPC has said is that um, they are monitoring the situation. Uh, they've been given the information that they asked for. Um, they were looking for the, the basically the, the, the name of the data protection officer who was going to be looking after Twitter basically Twitter in the EU going forward. Um, It's Renato Montero, who's Twitter's Director of International Privacy and Data Protection. He's been named as Acting Data Protection Officer. Interim. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's what I did ask, you know, is there an issue there with having an acting as opposed to a full-time? There's no issue there as long as there is somebody there. The other thing, the more important um, thing, I suppose, from the DPC's point of view, um, was this this, uh, main establishment thing. And, you know, the decisions that are being made on processing EU users' data have to be done in you know, basically basically at the in an EU base now that has been Dublin because obviously that's their European HQ they have said that that situation will continue going forward if that doesn't and if these decisions are being made you know in in California then they will not be able to they not be able to avail of this main establishment rule which means one stop shop is gone and they will then have to deal with individual data protection commissioners throughout Europe. So that is a lot of extra work. Um, I'm not sure 
how that's going to go. But obviously the, the, the DPC is monitoring it. Any sign of a change in that will lead to, you know, further conversations, I'm sure, with Twitter. But you do have to have, under EU rules, you do have to have um, a, a data protection officer in place. That person has to be available to be contacted when needed. So that is one thing, I suppose, that the, that the DPC has in hand now. How this goes in the future is anybody's guess, because to be honest, two weeks ago, I wouldn't have been able to tell you that this is how Twitter would look now. I didn't think that they would yank um, the verification as it stands at the moment. I mean, as it, basically, the, the, the blue tick is now meaningless because you don't know until you actually go and do some further looking, you know, whether or not this person is a verified user or whether they've just paid their $8 and said that they're Joe Biden, as also happened. So we had a Jesus Christ on Twitter verified by yeah. Elon. Like, how can you verify? I mean, that just shows you the absolute lunacy of the whole thing. Can you actually verify that this person is Jesus? Probably not. Um, it's If it's a Twitter blue account, you know, it just means that they have $8 and they've given their credit card details to Elon Musk. And to be honest, it's not, I mean, I would not be massively comfortable handing over payment information to a social media company, regardless of whether it's Twitter or the way other, another company. But this is where, you know, this seems to be the, the end game is to make it into something more like, you know, WeChat or Line or one of those things, you know, where it's going to take, it's going to be a super app. And to be honest, I think, you know, get your house in order first before we start talking about super app, because at the moment it's a super mess. And Nothing that I am seeing gives me any confidence um, that it's going to improve. Um, and, you know, while I'm sure Elon Musk is absolutely devastated about my opinion, which I'm sure he cares absolutely zero about it, um, and I'm sure there'll be plenty of people who would like to tell me that on Twitter as well, I just feel like if I'm feeling like that, there's going to be a lot more people feeling like that. And I'm certainly not going to be paying $8 for a blue check mark. Um, I'm certainly not going to be handing over my credit card details to Twitter. Uh, I wouldn't give them to Facebook either, though. So, you know, you know we're, we're equal on that point. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see where it goes. And I think, you know, that a lot of the, the, the fuss about Twitter has been precisely because of how chaotic it's been. And this is not something we're used to seeing. Look, they're not the only ones to announce layoffs. They are the only ones to announce layoffs in that weird manner of, oh, hey, if you get a, an email to your work account, you still have a job. If you don't and you get it to your personal account, you're at risk of redundancy. I mean, that just seemed cruel, unnecessary, not a great way to do business. The quickest way probably to lose the people that you want to keep as well, because why would anybody stick around? Um, if, you know, obviously, look, you know, we're having mass layoffs in the tech industry, but people don't have to work for Twitter. They just don't. I mean, I, and if you want good people to stick around, you treat your staff properly and you don't um, blindside them repeatedly because as soon as they get a decent offer, they'll be gone. And then you're left with people that you probably didn't want in the, the first place. You're going to be left with the people who will work there because they don't have a choice. And obviously we're not at that stage yet. So, you know, I'm not inadvertently insulting anybody who currently works for Twitter, but, you know, it just doesn't seem to have been very well thought out. Um, and nothing would give me any confidence that this is going to change. I mean, the fact that like people are being fired, you know, for pointing out that something he said is wrong, you know. I saw that one blow up, but I think the individual yeah. in question, uh, 
uh, was obviously somebody who was quite skilled and seemed quite sanguine about his uh, future um, job prospects. So in that case, <laughs> I think, I think you know, <laughs> we sort of um, live by the sword, but die by the sword. But also, you know, um, perhaps, as you say, Twitter needed this particular expert more than this particular expert um, needed Twitter. <laughs> the DPC, I mean, as you say, obviously it's the lead European regulator, but it, it, it still has to join a bit of a queue here, doesn't it? Because... You know, the, so the Federal Trade Commission in the US warning Musk that, that no CEO or company is above the law. And we've seen him clash with the SEC in the past in relation to Tesla. Um, is there yes. just a big risk, do you think, um, that he's just going to ignore everything regulators say? Absolutely, because he's done it before. I mean, the SEC, it, it, you know, it wasn't just like one spat that he had with the SEC. You know, th- there was some... some uh, stuff over the share price of Tesla and whether or not he was going to take Tesla private. He got slapped on the wrist by the SEC, but it didn't really seem to slow his roll much. Um, you know, he was kind of talking about stuff that people were saying was was fairly close to the bone and in terms of, of breaching that agreement on the SEC. And I think he, he had undertaken not to, to tweet about it. Um, and obviously... You know, that that hasn't really held. You know, he was talking about whether or not he was going to sell shares in Tesla and did a Twitter poll on whether or not he would sell shares in Tesla. I'm sure that there was probably some eyebrows raised in the SEC over that as well. I think, look, there is always going to be people who will try to push and push as far as they can. As we've already seen by the fact that, you know, immediately after people were told, people were led to believe their jobs were gone in Twitter. Then there was all this, there was the, the, the talk of, oh, there's a 30-day consultation period. Anybody who's been through the redundancy process knows that that most likely means you're losing your job anyway. But it's something that we have to do. I mean, I've been through it before. We've seen it happen with other tech companies like PopCap. They had a 30-day consultation period. Um, and, you know, we had been told ahead of that, that consultation period that the jobs were gone. But officially, you know, you're not redundant until the process, that you run through the process. But, you know, everything just seems to be done a bit, backwards and this is what happens when you lose the people who have the expertise in this manner if you got your HR department this is what will happen if you got your comms department emails from journalists as I found out will go wholly unanswered if you don't have the necessary people in place it could backfire on you and the thing is though I don't think he really cares you know that's fine for him he on on paper he is the world's richest man but in practice, I mean, there are people at the end of all this. There are people in those jobs and there are people who are dealing with this turmoil, not only since he took over officially a couple of weeks ago, but since this whole process started several months ago. You know, I mean, there's this constant on edge and, and I, I don't understand how people could actually live like that. You know, there's a, there's, people were largely resigned, I think, when the, um, when the job cuts happened. You know, they were fearful but resigned was how one person put put it to me. And now, I mean, obviously we've seen how other companies have done this, you know, around the same time that Twitter decided it was cutting half its staff, you had uh, Stripe who had, you know, they were cutting, I think it's 13 or 14% of their staff. But the CEO came out, Patrick Carlson came out and said, look, this is our fault. Um, Patrick and John founded the company. They put their hands up and said, look, this is our fault. We grew too fast. We're no longer in that place where, you know, we can justify having this level of staff, you know, we're not in that growth period anymore. The same thing happened, you know, Intercom obviously have cut staff. The latest one now, uh, Wayflyer, 
uh, has cut staff. And this is the, these are their companies. Like obviously they're 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 not you know they're they're not Google or or Facebook, but they employ quite a lot of people. And in the case of Wayflower, you know they they're a tech unicorn as well. Um, they were growing significantly. They had some very ambitious targets by the end of the year. They've had to roll back on that. But in those cases, you see the chief executives putting up their hands and saying, "Look, you know this is." down to us. Now, obviously, we can't blame Elon Musk for, you know, the fact that maybe Twitter had too many staff, he's only taken over. But what you can say is there is a way to do things. And firing people by email in this weird kind of gamified way of, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, redundancy roulette is the only way I can describe it. You know, that is not the way to do things. You know, show your staff some respect. And this is what I'm seeing is a fundamental lack of respect for people who have given a lot of time to to Twitter. And now the latest thing is that, you know, I said people are being told this you are going to have to work long days. So long days, high intensity. I don't know why anybody would stick with that. Yeah, they might just conclude that uh, Twitter isn't necessarily uh, worth saving. Why should you sacrifice your your health (laughs) and your personal life (laughs) for the sake of this business that's that's not going to be loyal to you. It is interesting what you're saying about Stripe and I think Meta as well. They both use this phrase, there's no good way to do a layoff. And it did kind of seem to set them apart from um, Twitter, which seemed to be going out of its way to find the the, the worst way to do a, a layoff. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's obviously more to come on this topic, but that's, that's where the state of play lies at just right now as we're talking. But for now, thank you very much, Kira O'Brien. At EY, our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients, enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. The Irish motor insurance industry enjoyed its most profitable year in 2021 since at least 2009. What has this meant, or rather what might it mean for the premiums drivers pay? Joining me is Irish Times markets correspondent Joe Brennan. Hi, Joe. Hi, Laura. Start us off by telling us how exactly motor insurers fared last year. Yeah, so I suppose last year was kind of expected to be something of a, a watershed year in that we had the judicial guidelines uh, with regard to personal injury awards that came through in April of, of last year and basically has led to a huge reduction in terms of awards for personal injuries in cases that are actually dealt with through the guidelines. So on Monday, we saw the central bank figures showed that uh, awards that were granted under the judicial guidelines, basically they were down 34% versus awards that would have been uh, granted under the the kind of previous benchmark, which would have been the, the, the book of quantum. The unfortunate thing is that only 16% of personal injury cases were actually went through, the, the guidelines were used for that. So we're hopefully now next year we'll see a, an increase from, from that 16%. In the meantime, we've seen that in the insurance industry, and if you go way back, the insurance industry and motor coverage is a cyclical uh, market at the best of times, but it's highly volatile in the Irish market. And we saw... Between 2013 and 2015 or 16, that insurers lost, all told, lost about 360 million euros in motor coverage. Um, since then, they've been kind of 
not only kind of clawing that back, but actually have uh, due to uh, rising premiums, but also actually the, the, the profitability over the last five years has been some 730 uh, million euros for, for just for the motor uh, part of the business. So, yeah, it's, it's highly volatile and we've seen a lot of increases in, in, in premiums following the loss making period. Even though we saw a reduction in the awards under the guidelines come down significantly. We only saw a 2% decline in, in premiums last year. And we also saw an overall reduction about 9% in terms of costs of claims last year. So we saw the profitability of motor insurers rise to about 176 million last year, which, as you said yourself, is a, is a record on the data that goes back to at least 2009, uh, compiled by the by the central bank. Yes. Yeah, so this is this national claims information database, which is very useful because you know we didn't always have it, and we used to talk in the noughties about the level of profits that motor insurers were making, and and we didn't have exactly the clearest picture. Whereas now. I think we do. But you you mentioned there, you know, the cost of claims is falling much faster than the cost of premiums. Is there just a lag there or, you know, what's going on? Yeah. So Insurance Ireland would say, look, if you look at the the data, um, so premiums went up about 60% or more than 6% between 2013 and 2017 as uh, the industry sought to kind of claw its way back into profitability. And that followed a period, you know, a woeful period where we saw a loss-making period, but we also saw some insurers run into trouble. Not least, we had Quinn Insurance back in 2010 implode. A few years later, we had RSA Insurance, which had aggressively built up market share in the Irish market, require a bailout from its UK parent. And even the only Irish domestic insurer, or Irish-based domestic insurer, FBD, that required a a, a bailout investment from a Canadian investor back in 2015. So their ability to, to, to price risk uh, was kind pretty woeful before then but they increased they had to increase um, their premiums they went up more than 60% on the motor side between 2013-2017 they've come back since then so the NCID figures that were out on Monday show that the premiums have come back about 17% between the peak in 2017 and uh, the end of last year. Now, Insurance Ireland, which is the, the lobby group for the uh, insurance industry, would say that look at, if you look at CSO data um, for, for this year, uh, Central Statistics Office data for this year, that would imply another 10% uh, of a decrease uh, over the first 10 months of this year. So all told, you're talking about 27%. So it, it yeah it's 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 slow enough, but in, if you look at the judicial awards as well, last year uh, when they came out first, uh, even those cases that were going through PIAB under the uh, judicial uh, award framework, about a third of those were being rejected at that stage. Now that's 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 come back a bit. In, in more recent times, so that's kind of hopeful. Uh, again, this year we've seen a number of cases that uh, sought to challenge the constitutionality of the judicial guidelines uh, be pushed back by, by by the High Court. So that may see fewer people going down the, 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 the legal route. Yes, because it isn't always the best option, is it, to go the legal route. People obviously think it is at the time, but there's data to suggest that that's not the case, really. Yeah, if you look at the figures, particularly if you look at, you know, majority of claims, the majority of personal injury awards would be for less than 100,000. 94% of cases are are, are less than 100,000. And if you look at cases that go the legal route in 20. 
2021, the, the average award for a litigated case was uh, 24,300. And that compares to about 21,800 for a case that went through PIAP. So not a huge difference. But if you look at the legal costs, uh, the legal costs for litigated cases were about 15,500 versus less than 700 for a case that went through PIAP. Now, of course, the legal costs are borne by the insurer, but ultimately they are borne by consumers uh, or people who actually uh, buy insurance products. But also, just when you look at time, litigated cases take almost four years to be settled, whereas it's, it's, it's about half that period for cases that go through PIAP. So for most cases, the upside from going down the litigation route, even before we had the judicial uh, guidelines, was limited. So PIAP, the, the Personal Injuries Assessment Board, I think it was 2004 it was set up. I mean, are we at the stage now where we can say it is working, it's, start, it's starting to work the way it was intended? <laughs> Well, a lot of cases, I mean, a lot of cases go past uh, PIAP. You know, they may be initially, may initially go through, but actually end up going the, the litigation route. And again, if you look at the figures for last year, we even saw an increase in cases that go to litigation. Uh, it went up by one percentage point to uh, 34%, whereas the, the, the number of cases that were settled in PIAP itself fell by one percentage point to 15%, even though we had the judicial guidance come through, which is supposed to get rid of the whole uh, benefit from actually going down the legal route, given that the awards are supposed to be say, the same for, for, for both. Um, I think it'll take a while for that, that to wash through and for people who would ordinarily go down the legal route to realise that the upside is, is not there by going down the legal route. Uh, but even... PIBE itself, it's limited in what it can do. And there is legislation going through the Oireachtas at the moment that is trying to increase the, the services that PIBE can offer, such as allow for it to appoint uh, mediators to mediate between both sides of, of a claim. So hopefully that would result in, again, fewer cases go down the litigation route. Yes, because the government really has a key role in this. Um, in the, there's more reform needed and, and more reform on the way. Yeah, so obviously we had the Judicial Council that was set up uh, under law a few years ago, which led to the judicial uh, guidelines. You have another arm of the state, you have the, the central bank move this year, and it was also in the, the programme for government to get rid of dual pricing or price walking. Now, it didn't quite, dual pricing is where you have uh, a different rate for someone who is renewed renewing versus a new customer. Now, while the central bank didn't get rid of that per se dual pricing, it stopped kind of price walking from from year two onwards. So if you're renewing your policy for the first year, there can be an increase in premiums. But from there on in, any increase in premiums should not be above what you would ordinarily have gotten had you been renewing for the first time. So that came in in July, and the hope is that that will feed through into the uh, claims and the awards data coming through in the in, in the coming years. And as I mentioned, we also have the PIBE, uh, the Resolution Board Bill, which would bring in, hopefully bring in uh, mediation for, for, for PIBE. And also we have more broadly for the wider insurance industry and more for the, the loss-making areas of insurance uh, in recent years of employers' liability and public liability and, and, and commercial property liability. They're bringing in, they're trying to bring in a reform laws that would kind of balance the the duty of care of business owners or property owners with that of personal responsibility for individuals, uh, be it consumers or, or members of the public. 
Yes, I mentioned at the start there that, that motor insurers had had a bumper year last year. But of course, they're not just motor insurers. They have these other lines of business um, and they were uh, extremely affected by the pandemic. Is there still a sense that what happened with the business interruption and other claims at the outset of the crisis, is that still lingering on the fortunes of the insurers today? Is it still there to be dealt yeah, with. so so many of the insurers would be general insurers. They wouldn't just have a motor business. They would be operating in home, and uh, they'd be operating in, in in commercial insurance as well. And uh, as you mentioned, the other areas, the the, the employer's liability and the public liability, and the uh, and the commercial property cases that uh, lines that that insurers usually kind of package together, that had been loss making for a number of years. It's been problematic in one area, some areas more than others, but they were particularly hit in two thousand and twenty uh, when we had COVID and we had the business interruption claims. Now the data, the industry wide data that we have was only. For, so far is only for 2020 for that uh, side of the business. I think it was about 130 million euro loss was made by insurers in the employer's liability, public liability and, and commercial property area. Obviously, that was a once off, but the underlying profitability of that part of the business has been, you know, it's been pretty woeful in recent years. And certainly, while we've seen a huge increase in the profitability of the uh, motor insurance uh, lines of insurers, to a large extent, that's been kind of cross-subsidising the more loss-making or the more kind of uh, challenged parts of their other parts of their books. Okay, yeah, no, it's interesting. I, uh, my theory is that the energy crisis and the spike in energy bills, both for uh, businesses and households, has sort of uh, taken the heat off insurers for a little while. But but obviously, um, consumer advocates will be be watching this space very carefully to see if the falling costs are passed on to consumers in a way that I think everyone would hope and expect that they would be. Absolutely. And certainly the, the profitability of the industry is way above what it should ordinarily be. If you look at it, it it's a complicated line. It's, it's basically the combined operating ratio. So that's basically, it tells you whether an insurer is making money. So if the costs of setting claims and other expenses are below 100%, that means they're writing business at a profit. Last year, that ratio was 80%, whereas normally the industry would look to target somewhere between 90 and 95%. So certainly the, the underlying profitability of the motor part of the business is, is much greater than the industry would ordinarily target, albeit a market is, uh, you may allow for a bit more given that the, the Irish market is, is volatile, but there's certainly scope to move further. Okay, well, on that uh, tumultuous note, we'll park this conversation there for the moment. Thank you very much, Joe Brennan. And that's it for this week's edition of Inside Business. My thanks again to Kira O'Brien and Joe Brennan. You can have all the latest business news land directly in your inbox each morning if you sign up to our Business Today email on irishtimes.com. Today's podcast was produced by Declan Conlon. We'll be back next week. Thanks very much for listening.